This week on the Saber.com podcast, a midseason report on the Virginia football team, a preseason deep dive with Virginia basketball, and in the music segment, a look at the class of 2020 for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. All right, time again for another thesaber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host, along with Chris Horn and Chris Wright from thesaber.com. And well, we're at the midseason point, guys. Uh, we talked a lot of Louisville last week, thinking there would be a game, and then there wasn't. So that's the matchup, of course, for this Saturday, which was supposed to be a bye week for the Hoos. So the bye week came a little bit early. And as we discussed a little bit on last week's episode, in case folks haven't had a chance to catch it yet, we were talking about the top program in uh, the state of Virginia, and it turns out it is, in fact, the Liberty Flames. <laughs> what a game. What an ending. Crazy uh, Liberty ranked 25th in the country at the time, 38-35 over the Hokies in Blacksburg. Notre Dame gets the win, of course, one of the biggest games of the year so far, 47-40 double overtime, which did not please the many fans in uh, my Facebook feed who wanted to see Dave Chappelle host SNL. Delayed that start by about an hour. (laughs) The game that just wouldn't end, but it was a good one. Notre Dame 47-40 over Clemson. Uh, knocking them from the top of the ranks and uh, Miami in a game on Friday night. That was a good one too. Just back and forth. A lot of points, 44, 41 Miami uh, beating NC state. But since we did talk a lot about uh, Louisville last week, guys, we're just going to kind of look at UVA at the halfway point here of the season. And uh, where should we start in terms of the, uh, the grades you want to give various uh, facets of the football program at this point? The the first place to start, I guess, is that the grades, are pretty inconsistent if you go in if you go week by week right that the defense was dominant against duke has had a lot of issues since but was solid in a couple of games that they lost but not good enough because they gave up you know a couple of big plays against wake forest so inconsistent the offense is improving but wasn't very good early was turning the ball over way too much we at one point said they were on pace for 33 turnovers they've cleaned that up so they're trending in the right direction but have not been consistent and then special teams has been better lately but was all over the place early they covered stuff and a blocked punt and two uh turnovers on special teams that led to touchdowns for for different opponents so a lot of issues there early as well so I guess the the general feel about halfway through is inconsistent seemed to be improving maybe the schedule had something to do with it you know Clemson and Miami and some of those early who who still only have one loss among them you know and now the schedule in theory (laughs) eases up so we'll see if the improvement trend continues but I kind of feel like that's where we are inconsistent but improving you know the NC State game I think put I think back when it happened, I think Coach Mendenhall, meant, I think he used the term surprised. And I think it surprised them and it kind of maybe knocked their confidence off and just kind of knocked them off their kilter a little bit. Of course, you know, losing Brennan Armstrong in that game as well. But at the same time, they were able to bounce back. You know, that was a really, I mean, I haven't seen that performance, uh, you know, for uh, for a long time, I think, um, uh, at Virginia, the, the one against NC State, in terms of just the lack of fire, lack of competitiveness, and just lack of focus they seem to have. But they really bounced back well, I think, starting that next week against Wake Forest, which wasn't perfect, but I think it was a step in the right direction. And I think they've kind of continued to take steps in the right direction since then. I mean, there are some clear weaknesses that Virginia, you know, Virginia just doesn't, looking uh, the rest of the way, there just is not a lot of room for um, error. Uh, for this team to win. I mean, you look at the secondary, I think it's uh, kind of a given they're going to give up big plays. Who knows when Joey Blount and uh, Brenton Nelson 
uh, who when they may return. So it, the good signs have been on offense where they seem to be, you know, Brian Armstrong has been coming along better. Um, some other guys are emerging, Keaton Thompson, you know, the running game. Uh, the receiver, you know, receivers are still kind of a little bit of a question mark. So I think certainly, yeah, as Chris mentioned, some it's definitely inconsistent, but I thought I, I like the way they responded after kind of, especially in this year, I think the season could have definitely gone way off kilter had they had, you know, if they uh, would have, you know, Miami, I think was a, a, a good game, but you know, they, they hung with them. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously they got the loss, but they hung with them and got some confidence and then, you know, built that against you built upon that against UNC. And so they seem to be going in the right direction. Hopefully they can continue it against Louisville and keep, uh, you know, getting some wins. Well, it's interesting too, guys, as I'm looking at the new rankings here. So you got Notre Dame is up to two. Clemson didn't fall very far. They're at four. Of course, they were playing with the backup quarterback. And I think they had three defensive starters that were out uh, for one reason or another from that Notre Dame game. And it was, you know, in Indiana. Uh, Miami is at nine right now. So you got three top 10 teams in the ACC and no one else is ranked uh, in the conference. Anyway, Liberty, by the way, is up to 22 uh, Broncos old team BYU up to number eight. They've been having a pretty fantastic season. I think they had a lot of schedule goofiness with COVID and everything. So I believe their schedule has been a lot easier than it might've been as it was uh, regularly drawn up, but uh, they've benefited. They've played well. Rolled up a lot of points on uh, on Boise State in their most recent game, which looked to be by far the toughest on their schedule. So you're going to have some teams like Cincinnati. They're undefeated. They're at number seven. You might end up with four or five teams at the end of this year that are undefeated. That'll be real interesting to see how that all plays out with the college football playoff. But uh, I think those top four are pretty well locked in at this point, unless there's a huge upset uh, between now and the end of the season. But uh that, that's kind of the national landscape, but, you know, in terms of, of UVA that they're still fighting and clawing for, you know, that, that fourth spot in the, in the ACC, as we've talked about before uh, on the podcast here. Coach Mendenhall had an abbreviated weekly press deal, but something he mentioned is that he watched the Clemson Notre Dame game, which he never really does like watch other teams play. But he said, one obvious thing you can kind of take from that game is how much quarterback play matters in college football. And basically every team you just listed off has a really good quarterback. Liberty, you know, certainly Notre Dame. Clemson apparently has two really good quarterbacks. So Virginia's struggles early were tied to that a lot, right? Armstrong was turning it over a ton. He was slow starting. Uh, he got injured and missed a game and a half. So that position is so critical. And he's really cleaned up his play since he's come back from that concussion. He's not turning it over as much. His decisions are better. He's protecting the ball for the most part. He had that one like late kind of poor decision throw against Carolina. But really the last two games, for the most part, he's not putting the ball in danger zone even. He goes from throwing interceptions here, there, and everywhere to suddenly like, no, I'm, I'm going to take care of the football. So I think he learned a lot really rapidly. And maybe being out and being able to watch the other guys play quarterback, uh, give him a chance to reset or whatever. And then they've also gotten more out of the quarterback position by doing a little bit of wildcat there with Keaton Thompson and Ira Armstead before he was before he's out. Now he's out for the season now, but they got some use out of him as well. So improving the the play at quarterback has been part of the story for the team looking better and then getting the getting the win against Carolina. Well, and we lost another uh, player for the season, guys. Uh, Chris Horn, you want to reflect on the the career of Richard Burney, uh, senior defensive end. Just a, a tough break. Undisclosed medical issue was the official reasoning there. 
Yeah, I don't want to speculate. It seems possibly, you know, related to what happened to him in 2018. But, you know, obviously a guy who's really worked hard. And I mentioned him earlier this season as just a player that I've seen as far as just the effort that he shows. And, it, you know, he was, he was making a, a few plays also for the Virginia defense. So he was, you know, it's tough to see uh, that happen uh, to, you know, a kid who's, you know, he's not the most vocal. So he definitely hasn't been like one of the most vocal Virginia players in the program, but just a guy who, you know, obviously everybody respects. Uh, he earned team captain status uh, this year as a six-year senior, and that he just keeps coming back and uh, keeps uh, keeps working hard. So I know somebody asked if uh, he could come back for a seventh year. Obviously, I'm, you know, his health is first and foremost, but uh, it would be great to see him end his career on on a good note rather than you know, exiting, but it, one, you know, other topic that coach Mendenhall addressed was the JMU grad transfers coming in Adib Atariwa, who's a defensive end. And, you know, those guys, just that group of, uh, you know, those two, but the other graduate transfers, they're playing such a huge role for the team this year in both, in both wins, the win over Duke and the win over North Carolina, especially the win over North Carolina, they all had significant roles in that victory. So where Virginia would be without, you know, those two, as well as, you know, Keaton Thompson, Tony Paul Jan, uh, Rayshon Henry's kind of emerged the past uh, past few weeks. Uh, Shane Simpson, of course, had a great game against North Carolina. Who knows where Virginia would be? And I'm not sure, you know, obviously Virginia had some guys sit out because of COVID, but, uh, you know, bringing in that many grad transfers and the fact that they're able to contribute is, is kind of a pretty, pretty cool story. Well, and uh, I couldn't help but look at both uh, the Who's and the Hokies' remaining schedule, and this was even before we thought we were going to have a game last week. And it's kind of interesting how how it opens up a little bit for the Who's theoretically, and uh, the Hokies definitely theirs gets tougher. So leading into that final game of the year could be very interesting in terms of the records now versus what the records might be uh, by then. It, is that tough, do you think, for uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old guys not, not to, to look ahead? I know all the, they say all the right things and the coaches say all the right things, but uh, that's got to be lingering in your mind, right? If this team starts looking ahead, then they're not going to be uh, – <laughs> they're going to be back where they were uh, a few weeks ago, I think. So they cannot do that. I keep telling you, Jeff, stop counting out <laughs> counting out the win and loss column. <laughs> it does not work that way, particularly in this league where four through 15 or whatever – are basically the same team, <laughs> you know, yeah. on any given week. Like they all have issues. They all have flaws. Turnovers can swing a game dramatically between any of them. Yeah. I wouldn't be counting wins and losses. Just see if you can take care of Louisville at all. <laughs> first things first. That's right. Well, um, even Notre Dame, you know, as well as they played in that game against Clemson, I would be, I mean, that would just be an incredible season if they can run the table through the rest of it. They, they still got to play Boston college. I mean, It'll be interesting. Might have a rematch on our hands at the end of the year with uh, Clemson Notre Dame again, right? By, by the way, Clemson had won what fifty straight Saturday games. Yes. What? <laughs> <laughs> so there are some things you can count on in in college football until you can't anymore. You know, we were talking about the transfers just then. The coach Mendenhall said at his weekly press conference he thinks the most consistent player offensively has been Billy Kemp. Right. That's not a transfer. That's one that's come up through the ranks, homegrown, prepped. Uh, Chris Horn has been on this from the first podcast we did. Right. He's like, Billy Kemp, he's going to step up. He's ready to step up. He's got the right attitude. He's got the right work ethic. So, what was interesting, though, was Coach Mendenhall was asked kind of like what he thought Kemp could become 
before he got here. So like recruiting process. And he said, listen, I was the one that pushed for him. And we don't get that kind of little recruiting tidbit very often from Coach Mendenhall. He was like, listen, he came to our camp. We saw him. He's playing receiver. He's running good routes. He's getting open. And then they switch sides and he's playing defensive back. And then he's catching punts. And then he's taking extra reps over here. And I'm going, wow, this kid, he's got a great work ethic. He's really getting after it. And so he really pushed for it, regardless of measurables and all that kind of stuff. Coach and I was like, yeah, I see it. I see what you're seeing. We can definitely use him in our system. And then, you know, they offer, he ends up here. And now he's doing a little bit of the Zacchaeus thing where he's just um, racking up catches week after week after week. Um, I don't remember exactly what his line was against Carolina. It was not as good as some of the early games where he rattled off eight or nine catches, but he has been very consistent about being open, pretty sure-handed, more drops than last year. We've talked about the receivers having more drops than, than last year as a whole, but by and large, he's been open and he's being productive with the football. You'd like to see a little more after the catch, but I seem to remember right around this phase of Zacchaeus's career, that was what he was focusing on and Hagens was pushing him on too. It was like, okay, you've been open. You're catching the ball. Now you got to get yards after the catch. You got to add to it. So I'm sure he's getting that little buzz uh, from coach Hagens in his ear as well. Well, I'm looking at the stats here too, guys. Uh, you know, he's the leading receiver by yardage, 402 yards, 45 receptions by far the most, only one touchdown so far. Paul Jan leading uh, among the receiving core with four touchdowns. You got uh, Talapapa with four touchdowns and he's our uh, leading rusher. 330 yards total, but actually Brendan Armstrong has more attempts, two more attempts than Wayne does. Is that surprising, Chris Horn, when you see something like that, considering Brennan basically missed, what, a game and a half at least, right? Uh, constantly worries me, though, about how much pounding um, the quarterback position takes in, a, in, in Coach and I's offense. Now, I think Armstrong is is tough and a rugged guy, but certainly, you know, again, he, he's had – uh, he, he's had a few issues in terms of injuries uh, early in his career. And, and really, Bryce Perkins was just a freak, not just in terms of athletic ability, but just in terms of his toughness. Some of the hits that he took would have sent probably most guys out for like three weeks. Like, I mean, just there was a couple were like, okay, he's out, he's out for the season. But now he comes right back, like, you know, he goes to the tent, comes right back. <laughs> I mean, it was just it was just crazy. I mean, and you're not going to find guys like that that, that often. I mean, not only was he dynamic, but he was – just a super, super tough guy. And, you know, uh, that's why I think as far as recruiting is concerned, it'll be interesting to see if, if UVA, I know Coach Mendenhall has said that you need to have two quality quarterbacks um, uh, to be ready to go to compete at a high level in, uh, in, in the conference and hopefully want to compete for a conference championship. But with the way they run the quarterbacks, I mean, I think you kind of need like three and four to kind of like – really need to develop those guys and um, and have that position um, uh, really, really super stocked just because of the way they seem to like to, to use their quarterbacks. But, I mean, Armstrong, as far as his running ability, I, mean, I can see why they want to use him because he's got, you know, he, he doesn't look like he's going to be super fast, but he's got really quick feet and he can kind of escape out of situations um, uh, with the with those feet. And then he can, he's shown that he can make big plays and he can – he can fight through tackles and things like that. But again, that's just a lot of pounding to take, especially over the course of the season. You know, that puts Kemp roughly on pace for 800 yards, a little less than 800 yards because there's one less game left. Um, but then maybe a bowl game, so we'll see. But that puts him in that same territory with one game less this year to be flirting with a thousand-ish yards if you had the, the bowl game and the game that's missing because of COVID season, right? So They've now done that with Zacchaeus, Dubois, and Kemp is in that same yardage territory. So that shows you that they're they're plugging the next guy in. That's interesting. I think in terms of running, like 
yeah, they've run the quarterbacks a lot. Talapapa has been better than he was a year ago. I, I think that gets overlooked a little bit with the quarterbacks running so much, but he's been better in short yardage than he was a year ago. He's picked up a, a, some critical third and fourth down carries, including in the North Carolina game to help get that game won. I, I know he had at least one fourth down that it looked like he was going to be short and he got it. <laughs> like He turned yep. those legs and got it. Huge. So yeah. um, he's making some plays like that that have been a big deal. Well, and stats-wise for the defense, guys, so you got Nick Jackson by far the leading tackler, 64 total tackles. Uh, second is uh, Zandier with 52. Sack leader is uh, Snowden by far, five sacks out of the uh, 20 total for the Hoos. And, you know, statistically, does that sound about right for what you guys were thinking at the beginning of the year? Or are some of these uh, numbers a little eye-popping, uh, plus or minus-wise, I guess? Yeah, I think the defense, I mean, I guess has just been inconsistent, but I think, you know, obviously they had the huge game against Duke where they had, what, seven turnovers and then, you know, kind of resurfaced against North Carolina, made some big plays. And Charles Snowden, obviously with the four sacks against North Carolina, had a had a great game. <clears throat> but overall, in terms of creating the havoc, I don't think it's been as consistent as they, they want it to be. But again, it's kind of like similar to last year, I feel like, where the, def- the defensive backfield – I mean, it's kind of a given that they're going to give up some big plays over the course of a game. So, and it's, you know, a topic we've discussed earlier this season. Do you take, you know, the really super versatile versatile guys like Snowden and Taylor and put them more in coverage? Or do you kind of utilize them like in their strengths, I think, which is like real, I mean, I think versatility is a strength, but in terms of creating havoc, getting after the quarterback and having just a really, like, do you have a stout front seven or do you have like a, a front seven that, you know, you try to, mix in with the coverage to kind of help out with the defensive backfield. So I think I feel like they're kind of trending in the direction of, you know, I think you're still going to see Snowden and Noah Taylor in coverage and things like that. But I feel like they're going to trend in the direction that, Hey, you know, we're going to give up some plays on the back end, but we need to have a front seven that like they did against Carolina that can really get in the backfield and really um, create some problems for the, uh, uh, for the opposing offense. When I look at the defense uh, run defense better than expected, They've been really good against the run with the exception of a few, you know, jailbreak type of runs. They really shut down North Carolina's running game. That was a huge part of it, including some of the, the perimeter runs that have been concerning me from earlier in the year. And that's important because Louisville uh, apparently runs a lot of stretch plays. And remember, NC State had a lot of had a lot of success with that. So that's a little a good sign that they've cleaned it up. They were going to have to continue that in this game. So the run defense better than thought. Pass defense, not as good as we thought. <laughs> right. Not as much pass pressure, not as many sacks, not as many pass breakups, deflections at the line included and and not enough good enough coverage. Right. They've given up a lot of big passing plays. So the pass defense, not as good as expected. Nick Jackson as advertised. <laughs> right. That's the other thing. When I think when you read off all those numbers, I'm going, yeah, that dude's as advertised. His uh, his tackle totals are high in part because he doesn't miss tackles. <laughs> if he If he gets to the guy, he gets him down almost every single time. And that will help your your tackle totals in a hurry. Yeah, he slams him down. I mean, he got off the, you know, early in the Duke game, I believe it was pretty early. Uh, Duke had a third and five. And, you know, we heard so much about Jackson coming in. You know, you kind of hear that stuff frequently. It's like, um, you know, is it going to be true? <laughs> Just how good is this guy? And then I remember it was like a third and five. And I think you know, Duke had a running play up the middle, got three yards, looked like he was going to get a first down. And then, bam, he, Nick Jackson comes in and just stops him cold. And uh, I was like, okay, <laughs> that was kind of like, oh, okay, 
yeah, he's pretty good. And then he's just kept on going from there. So he, he's a lot of fun to watch. And I think just for the next couple of years, it's going to be fun watching him get after it and some of the guys that they have in the linebacking court. Any indication, guys, on if or when Joey Blunt might be back? He is such an important part in that uh, they did a nice piece in the local news on him. Uh, I can tell you more about that in a moment. But have we heard any updates on him? Yeah, he's going to be a weekly question. It's just not something that's known. We think it's a hamstring based on how he reacted when he first got hurt back early in the season. And those are, A, unpredictable, B, easy to re-injure. And there's at least some murmurs out there that we may be waiting a long time, <laughs> meaning like wow. may not see him again. We'll, we'll see what, what plays out with that. But the way Mendenhall keeps answering that question, he's hinting at that. He's like, well, we're just assuming we're not going to have him back. <laughs> uh, so he's hinting at the fact that they they don't see any sort of rapid timetable here. Man, that's a bummer. Well, he was named as the uh, Cavaliers nominee for the William V. Campbell Trophy. That's known as the Academic Heisman. Goes to the uh, country's best college football player coming uh, when it comes to academic success, football performance, and exemplary leadership. So Micah Kaiser actually won the award in 2018. Jordan Mack was a finalist last year. So UVA... Uh, trying to continue that tradition. Pretty awesome. He uh, earned his bachelor's degree in American studies in just three years, currently earning his master's in education at the uh, Curry School. We hope Virginia uh, had another winner there too. Uh, Burns back in the nineties also won the Campbell oh, trophy. Okay. So Tom Burns. Yep, Tom. Yeah. So the, the, the Burns Kaiser. All linebackers. Yeah. Uh, awarded. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, again, got a, a big-time breakdown on the, the Louisville game from last week's episode, so be sure to check that out, and we'll look ahead and get in-depth with our uh, UVA men's basketball coverage. Next, we've been going kind of player grouping by player grouping from the, uh, the front court, and we'll delve into the back courts, those lead guards, as they call them. And why do they call them that? We'll get into that next year on the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, thesaber.com. All right, we're back on the saber.com podcast, second segment here, talking about the who's uh, basketball-wise. We've been looking at uh, all the various aspects of this upcoming season, and we've just gotten the official AP Top 25 College Basketball Preseason Poll, which means oh so much to everyone. <laughs> I know, but it's fun to, to at least delve into the numbers here. Gonzaga, number one, getting the most first-place votes. Baylor, number two. Villanova, three. Virginia, number four. And they did garner at least one first-place vote. So a lot of Big Ten teams in the uh, top 25. Iowa is the uh, most highly ranked of those at number five. As far as the ACC goes, Virginia, Duke at nine. North Carolina, 16. And then Florida State, 21. So just four ACC teams in that preseason top 25. We've talked about pretty much all the guys so far, except for the uh, the lead guards, Chris Wright. Why do they call him that instead of point guards in Tony Bennett's system? And uh, who should we talk about uh, this week? So you really only have two guys that fit into that spot on this team. That's Kihei Clark and Reese Beekman, the, the freshman. So Tony likes to call it a lead guard because he doesn't exclusively have the point guard initiate the offense all the time. You have lead guards combo guards which is kind of a lead guard and something else that was more like a Kyle guy who was who could initiate and did initiate the offensive time Joe Harris did the same so those guys were kind of combo guards or combo wings uh, and then Chris and I tend to divide it up for our coverage into wings and forwards or wings and post uh, beyond that so versus just one two three four five and you still number it you still number it to teach it coach Bennett still references numbers when he's talking about it but in general 
lead guards, kind of combo guards, wings, front guard, forwards, right? That's how we look at it. And it's so interchangeable, right? In terms of the system, the lead guard has a lot on them, whoever that is. And he prefers to have more than one of them out there if possible, right? That's just, you can tell that by who he chooses to play and the combinations he chooses to play um, over his tenure here to date. And I think that will be revived and continue this year. And we'll get a, a little bit into that. But generally, those guys have to be able to bring the ball up get the offense started and be able to make plays off the bounce. They got to be able to do a little something with the dribble to get the ball where it needs to go for other players. In addition to being able to just kind of bring it themselves sometimes. So it's a critical position for the team. And the only reason I call it a point guard is because they often have more than one of them on the court versus some teams that, that put it exclusively in the point guard's hands. How much do you think Beekman's going to contribute to Chris Horn? Do you look forward to seeing him on the court quite a bit or, or maybe just sporadically? Well, I think he's he's Reese Beam was going to see significant minutes. Um, what that looks like exactly, we'll have to find out. I think you know from what Coach Bennett, which he says pretty much every year, but he said he kind of reiter, reiterated this year is you know he's he's not sure what what the minutes breakdown is going to look like exactly. This is going to depend on how how the team gels together, the chemistry, and how you know getting the best team out there on the floor. But my sense is is just from back when he was in high school in, in Louisiana, uh, a, a guy who does the scouting goes to NBPA top hundred camps. He kind of, so he's, he, he follows the high school circuit very closely. And he, he uh, mentioned that re- he thought that Reese was the top point guard in this class, uh, the 2020 class. And the reason was just his ability to control the pace of the game and to control the game, which that sounds very familiar with uh, UVA lead guards of the past, certainly. And I think just being able to take some pressure off of uh, Kihei Clark, I think is going to be important. But I think he seems to, you know, Reese, I think, has kind of a maturity to his game. So I think he's going to be able to act, to be able to add some things and see some significant minutes. Again, what that exactly looks like, I'm not sure. But I feel pretty comfortable saying that he's prob- he's going to get double-digit minutes Again, just from for a ball handling perspective, he can get the ball. He can get the ball to the basket. He can drive. You know, shooting uh, shooting consistency is kind of the one thing that I think is a question mark for me with him. But I think just in terms of his overall feel and IQ for the game, and again having somebody that can take some of the load off Kihei Clark uh, out there, and and again I think you'll see them both out there together as well. But I think he's a guy that um, seems to me that has the, the writing is on the wall. I think he's going to get some playing time. I'd be surprised if he if he doesn't. I think it's it's a given that he's going to play. Of the freshmen, he's the one that I can almost say, yes, he's definitely playing no matter what happens. And I think that for several reasons. One, last year's team, Kihei Clark had a massive burden on him in terms of initiating the offense, getting things started, making plays for others. All the things that I said described the lead guard. He was it. He was the guy that had to do all those things. And we heard Coach Bennett say over and over, he's got so much on his plate. He's got so much on his plate. And there is more than just getting the offense initiated, but that was a big piece of it. And the team did not have other playmakers until like mid-January. Walter Tensai got better at it as the season ended. He was up around two assists per game the last 10 or 12 games. But before then, he was not assisting very much. And Braxton Key picked up his game assisting a little bit as the season went on. And I guess as that cast got smaller, that probably helped him as well. But Braxton Key's not back. So of last year's assist guys, Walter Tensai is only sort of one, and he's the only one back. (laughs) So they need someone else out there that can initiate and get things going. So when I look at it, I mean, I think Beekman's probably going to play five to 10 minutes where he's running the show by himself without Kihei Clark, 10 minutes, maybe in blowouts, <laughs> right? Five minutes. Otherwise, a couple minutes per half weighted toward the first half. And then I think there are going to be anywhere from five to 10, 12 more minutes where he's playing with Kihei Clark. 
I think they're going to play together upwards of 10 to 12 minutes, which would get you around 17 totalish. Um, if he plays the maximum five by himself and the maximum 12 with Kihei, you're looking at like 17 minutes ballpark is the vibe that I feel like I'm getting. And we finally got to, to hear them for the first time in months. Uh, we did get a chance to talk to some of the players and Coach Bennett for the first time. And someone asked Kihei, like, well, what, what does Reese Beekman bring to the table? And his answer is right here. He's a great player. Um, he's young, but uh, he doesn't make that many mistakes. He takes care of the ball. Um, defensively, he's really solid. He, he doesn't get beat off the dribble. Um, he has quick hands in the gap. He could, he's a really good help defender. Um, and playing together, we've played a little bit with each other uh, throughout these past couple months. Um, I think we could definitely play together. I mean, we're not ball dominant guys, so um, yeah, I think it could definitely work out. It was just like, oh, everything that, that gets you playing time. He was like, he's really good position defense. He doesn't get beat off the dribble. He has good hands in the passing lanes. <laughs> he doesn't turn the ball over. He doesn't make mistakes. And I was like, I already thought he was going to play. But when Kihei Clark starts checking <laughs> off literally everything that can get you playing time here and he hit them all, I was like, oh, yeah, he's going to play for sure. <laughs> Maybe that's just Kihei wanting uh, <laughs> wanting a little more rest throughout the game. He's talking him up. <laughs> Before we switch topics, I got Kihei Clark still on the brain. Yeah, like, yeah. I've gone through some of these offensive numbers the last couple of weeks. And we talk about him having a whole lot on his plate. Everyone just thinks of that as what we were just talking about. Lead guard, initiate the offense, get people in the right spots, get people the ball where they like to touch it. That's enough in and of itself. He was also asked to carry a double-digit scoring burden. He was also their best spot-up shooter. He was also their best isolation player. He was their best player in a short shot clock situation. I mean, almost anything you can think of in terms of pressure situations where you need the guy to make a decision, he was it. He was the guy making the decision almost all the time last year. And that tra- that part does change a lot this year, and not just because of Beekman, right? Hauser is a guy that can get his own shot and can take some of those late shot clock burdens. Jabri Abdul-Rahim, maybe, the way Coach Bennett describes it, flashes so far from the freshman, but we've talked about him in the wing segment. He has the ability to, to maybe get his own shot. So, And then Beekman, in addition to that, someone else that can maybe create something for others. So I, I don't know if Kihei's going to – look a lot different or if he's still going to you know handle the ball a lot and make a lot of decisions i think he obviously is but i think when you start diving into the numbers last year you start understanding what coach bennett kept repeating that for man he's got so much on his plate he's got so much on his plate it's because he made almost every decision you had to make on offense pretty much the whole year and i think maybe just the mental part of that not the playing the 37 minutes he doesn't look like a guy that gets tired we talked about that uh before but the mental part of that that's hard and he did have some high turnover games uh, where he was having to make the decisions all the time, even when it was a bad situation and he just had to make something happen. Hopefully less of that this year, less mental burden as well. And how does that help him play? And remember the last 10, the last 10 or 12 last year, he was really stinking good. His assist to turnover ratio was way up. His turnovers were way down. He was hitting clutch shots against Tech and, and Louisville. And he was just so good last year by the end. And I mean, I'm excited about it. I'm just excited to see what what Kihei Clark looks like as an upperclassman in the mold of Jerome and Parentes and all those guys as upperclassmen. Yeah. I mean, I think last year also just when you think about how limited the offense was that I think he probably took a lot of the burden upon himself in certain situations when the offense was grind ground to a halt that he just kind of had to felt like he had to force something or try to do something to get the, get the offense going. And obviously 
that shouldn't be the situation this year. So yeah, I, I agree. It's going to be interesting to uh, uh, to see how he changes from the dynamic that was last year to what it's going to be this year, which should be different. So less on his plate. Maybe it'll be interesting to see how how he uh, handles that and comes out. And you know, I think it'll be good for him. And yeah, with his mentality, I mean, he and kind of uh and Billy Kemp kind of have some similarities there. They're both not uh, you know guys who are counted out by by some, but they take that and they, uh, as a chip on their shoulder, and they come out and they're not intimidated by anything. And you just, I think those guys are just easy to root for. And then with Kihei, I mean, we've seen just time after time that he's he's not afraid of the moment. Obviously, he looked at his true freshman <laughs> um, in, in the NCAA tournament run. And then last year, you know, the Virginia Tech game hitting the three. So it, I, I'm excited, too, to see what he can do and then to see what where some of these other offensive pieces that Virginia is going to have, how much better that can make him as well. Clark and Beekman are nothing like Malcolm Brogdon, but I have the Malcolm Brogdon kind of idea in my head. One thing those three all have in common is they just haven't lost a lot, no matter where they've played, <laughs> right? Beekman, what, was he four-time state champion, Chris, in, your, uh, in Louisiana? Yep. Right, so Beekman doesn't lose very much. Kihei Clark hasn't lost very much since he's been here. He won Peach Jam <laughs> on the AAU tournament circuit. We got two guys in the backcourt as lead guards, and neither one of them lose very much. <laughs> um, so that's just a good thing to have, I think. Yeah, Kihei oh. was the MVP of Peach Jam, so he wow. rate he he rate you know his he takes his game to another level at the at the the most important times, which Peach Jam for those who don't know is the AAU circuit that's kind of like the Super Bowl of the Nike EYBL circuit. And yeah, he was he was the MVP, and I believe that's where Bennett saw him like really kind of that. Maybe that experience really turned uh, Coach Bennett on to him because I think they were recruiting another player, Akinjo, who went to Georgetown. Now I believe he's he's transferred to Arizona. He's another point guard, but they spotted Kihei, and um, and then kind of the rest is history from there. Keep hmm. pulling for Malcolm to have a Hall of Fame or at least Pacers Hall of Fame, even if he doesn't make the big one type of career, so they retire his jersey because he's had his jersey retired everywhere. He had it retired at uh, at his high school, Greater Atlanta Christian, I believe is the name of the school. Had his number jersey retired here. Let, let's get it retired with the Pacers too. So yeah. keep playing well, Malcolm. We're we're pulling for the <laughs> trifecta there. <laughs> well, he's vice president of the Players Association or something, I think already. So that's amazing. As you guys were talking there, I, I was thinking of, you know, as, as many great things as he does on offense that you guys have been talking about. Kihei, for me, it, it's worth the price of admission just to watch him play defense. And I was thinking of being continuous. And that's something that Coach Bennett, I think, talks about a lot. And on offense, you know, as UVA fans, we've been spoiled with all those years of Joe Harris and then Kyle Guy, just seeing how hard those guys work off the ball in Bennett's offensive system in order to get those shots that they get. And, you know, is there somebody or maybe multiple people on this year's team that will be able to, to enjoy watching off the ball like that? Um, or is that just not really fit into the style of, of these players? No, there's still that, that element is still in the offense. To me, what's changing with the offense is it's less patterned what they call sides motion where you just see that flare screen, baseline screen, flare screen, baseline screen that we got so used to seeing the guys you mentioned work off of. The championship year last year, and I think this year, you're seeing more of a hybrid type of deal where you see some pure sides motion concepts. You see some pure ball screen concepts, which we saw so much of in the, in the title year. Now you're seeing late in that 
tournament run and then last year more spread ball screen combined with off ball screen kind of vibe it's more of a hybrid type of offense so it's sometimes harder to pick out exactly what they're running whereas before you're like oh i've seen i've seen this is virginia's offense right that it's more of a hybrid look now but there are guys on this offense that can run off screens and make plays i think hauser's a guy that can do that walter tensai is still a guy that can do that uh mccorkle if he becomes part of the equation minutes wise can do that kia clark can do that Remember, he checks all the boxes, um, so he's someone that can do that. He couldn't do it last year very much, but he did do it when Jerome was around. So now that Beekman is here, can he be a guy that comes off a couple of those? Um, so there are a handful of guys on this roster that can definitely do that. The question just becomes how do all these pieces fit together and how much of a hybrid offense do we see versus like a pure over and over patterned look that we got so used to and that kind of the, the what, the hamburger part of the of the been an era so far that we got the buns on the end <laughs> that meaty part in the middle it was very much a patterned offense and, and i think it's been trending away from that as the talent has improved yeah what do you think uh chris horn how much how many three-pointers do we uh cj huff shoot this year is he uh <laughs> is that in danger zone when when we start seeing him shoot too many from out there i i enjoy just watching him shoot from pretty much anywhere but it is yeah he's got a unique to have a guy yeah. yeah that big shooting out there like that well, he did say that the NBA scouts that he spoke with that or uh, I guess the NBA reps that he spoke with told you know, they like that he shot three. So we'll see if he comes out and starts, <laughs> uh, you know, hopefully don't shoot too much to where uh, that I don't know if Coach Benno would like that. But uh, no, I think that's a that's, a, you know, for me, I always think of his he's got such a pretty stroke and at the foul, the foul line, he's not as good a free throw shooter as I think he should be. He's just got that beautiful stroke. But yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a, a, a big part of the offense um, this year. I think we'll see more three-point shooting from him. It's just, it, 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 it'll be interesting to see uh, exactly like, it, you know, I know before he's gotten some looks like early in the shot clock, but then he didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to shoot him and Virginia was going to look for a, a, a better shot. You know, how early will his green light be, I guess, for that three-point shot. But, you know, another intriguing thing from Jay that he uh, mentioned that, you know, maybe scoring in the post. Now that's one thing that, you know, I think he's got the skill. The strength is kind of the question for me, but that's one thing that I think Virginia is going to need as far as being able to, uh, to score in the post that is gone with uh, Mamadi Diakite, who was able to do that last season. So if he can, if he can do that, I think that will, you know, that'll be a big thing for Virginia. If he can get some, get some scores in the post as well. Hauser can do that mid post thing too. Don't forget that he can be that that Mamadi Anthony Gill type where it's not a pure post, but a step or two off the lane and, and work. So that's going to be in the, the inside equation a little bit. The, the free throw thing with Jay Huff, I agree with, he agrees with it. I remember him saying back in the spring, like I, I've been working on my free throws during quarantine, you know, he's married now, so he doesn't have to impress, impress his girlfriend anymore. The pressure's off. So <laughs> maybe he'll, he'll make the, uh, the free throws with ease now. You know, McCoy could be somebody. I mean, we haven't seen enough of Justin McCoy yet, but he, he's got that frame where he could potentially do some damage in the post as far as maybe some post moves. Like, he's kind of got that Anthony Gill mold. I mean, Gill was such a skilled scorer in the post. You know, obviously I'm not saying that, and I think again, I don't think they were, they were necessarily similar players, but I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, if that was something that that uh, that Justin worked on as well, maybe uh, down in the post uh, to, to take advantage of, because he's got some pretty good size as well. Anthony Gill's footwork was so good. I've been coaching for so long. Like it's so much harder than I think maybe some people realize to get that footwork right, where you face up, 
you take that that one kind of power dribble and then land on both feet. So it's basically one step, hop step. That's hard for some athletes and some players to do fluidly and then be able to gather and score. He could do it. Darion Atkins could do it. It'll be interesting to see how McCoy develops over his time here with that specific kind of footwork. Mamadi could do it as well. So, yeah, we'll see. It's interesting. Is that kind of a natural thing, Chris, that like, you know, some like either you can do it or you can't. I mean, you can maybe work on it, but you either have it or you don't. I think it's it's easily something you can you can learn. The question is, can you be fluid with it and then kind of get off the floor with it after the hop step? So if you go one step, hop step, can you get off the floor fluidly around these six, eight, six, ten guys that you're playing against? Or physically, in Anthony's case, when you just go through your chin with his physicality down there. But yeah, looking back on it, like maybe underappreciated a little bit with Anthony, how good he was with that during that stretch. They were really good while he was here. If he didn't get hurt versus Michigan State, I think they would have won that game. Revenge tour. Revenge first, tour. That's right. First play. I'm convinced he would have they would have won that game. They that defensive effort, by the way, in that game was one of the best defensive efforts to start the second half of that Michigan State game. Uh in the Sweet 16 was just phenomenal. They came out and just suffocated Michigan State. And then Anthony Gold twisted his ankle and it was kind of downhill from there. Yeah. Well, maybe Kafaro, if we really need that uh enforcer, that physical presence down there, he seems to have a knack for that uh that aspect of the game that we may be in need of from time to time. And uh, if nothing else, absorb some, some fouls. <laughs> you know, the one thing we saw with Kafaro that not as much with since maybe Mike Toby is the ab- ability to turn over either shoulder, you know, Mamadi preferred going one way, mostly Darion preferred going one way, mostly Anthony Gill preferred, you know what I mean? Like that's not a bad thing. If you can do it and you can't, they can't stop you. You should just keep going that way anyway. But Mike Toby could turn off a turn off of either shoulder. I feel like Kafaro's got a little bit of that vibe to him where he can turn to either hand. Um, he just needs some experience and some growth. That was one thing out of the media availability that finally now we've gotten in the preseason here is that Caden Shedrick had mono um, at one point. So, you know, that put him a little bit behind. How will that affect the post minutes that we talked about a couple of weeks ago? That true five to back up Jay Huff type of deal. So we'll just see where he's at and, and how he's developing. But yeah, those guys... Long road ahead still. They're still youngins. Yeah, Cafaro, I mean, one thing I noticed with him coming out of uh, Argentina and some of the international contests that that they played was that, you know, comparing him to, like, say, like Jack Salt, where, you know, I think Jack just wasn't comfortable or wasn't confident, whereas Poppy Cafaro is pretty confident. I think when he gets the basketball, he's not afraid to make a move and 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 – uh, and score the basketball. So, you know, I think some, like I'm referencing Jack Salt, Jack Salt seemed like, you know, uh, that he was always maybe tentative, but I don't see that in Kafara. So he could definitely, uh, you know, be a guy who could surprise and maybe add some, some of those post points we're talking about this year. Well, and three point shooting is just such a, an important aspect of the game. Like we talk about football sometimes where you just, even if you have a decent defense, the team is going to score on you. So you got to keep up in the scoring column. We've again, been pretty spoiled with the defensive uh, efforts uh, during the Bennett era. Do you guys see, I mean, they've moved the line back obviously in college. So is the three pointer going to be as important as maybe two years ago, or how do you see, that kind of evolving not only within the uva program but just nationally to kind of keep up with the villanovas and uh whoever i mean i I guess duke has had teams here in recent years that have been so highly regarded and they don't seem to care about being able to make threes at all so remind me of duke's won the title lately (laughs) exactly (laughs) well the, Um, the, the one game they made it was in jpj that was you know two years ago but 
Zion made about eight of them. Right. Didn't hit one the rest of the year. <laughs> the three point volume remained high last year. So everyone thinks of last year being a poor three point shooting year. And it was percentage wise. They did yeah. not make enough three pointers, but the volume, meaning the percentage of their total shots that were threes remained high. That's something that started to turn the corner like three or four seasons ago and has steadily gone up. I don't have the number right in front of me, but it, Typically now with, with Coach Mendes teams is in the high 30th, high 30s in terms of percentage, like more than a third of their shots are threes. That's not going to change with this group. You're adding three-point shooters and you're not taking them away. So Hauser's a better three-point shooter than they had a year ago. Reportedly, McCoy's worked on it. McCorkle, if he gets in, in, in the lineup, obviously Jay Huff might have a higher usage percentage. So his he could take more than he did a year ago, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like there are shooters on this team starting first and foremost with Hauser. His reputation reputation is as a shooter. He said in his little preseason conference, like he's hoping to prove that he's more than that, that he's not just a shooter, but he definitely can shoot it. Jay Huff was like, he's the type that when he's on the other team in the scrimmages, you're like, please miss. Gosh, just miss already. <laughs> <laughs> right? That type. He can really get on a roll. So I think for that reason alone, the three-point shooting is going to be better this year, but the volume stayed the same last year. So I, yeah, they're going to keep shooting threes. I just think they're going to be better at it was such a drastic drop off in, in terms of what you could see with your eyes. Like, wow, they can't shoot. Well, it's because <laughs> Jerome and Guy and Hunter, their open three-point shooting percentage was through the roof. Last year's team did not shoot the ball well, even when open. And so it was such yeah. a stark contrast in back-to-back years. The number for Jerome, I think, was 1.6 points per possession on open catch-and-shoot shots. You know how many shots you have to make to score 1.6 points per possession? Like his shooting percentage on open catch and shoot shots was better than guy. Wow. So when you take both of those guys off the roster and you go, oh, and they're not shooting well, the difference, it just felt so dramatic. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Mamadi earlier, uh, Chris Horn, because the NBA draft, it's been such a fluctuating year with the NBA. We're just a few days away. So November the 18th. So it's next week. Best of luck to Mamadi. Their uh, potential for a uh, second round, I guess, is what the, the draft services are saying. Have you heard any any updated information regarding that or um, any other outlook? I haven't, I haven't heard. Uh, I know Chris is the kind of the NBA guy, but I, I would imagine that he's, a, I mean, just from a prospect perspective, you know, he didn't play a lot of uh, basketball in high school uh, in the United States. So he's, you know, still maybe has some upside. And then, you know, if he can get that three-point shot, down on the next level his athleticism uh, on the defensive end is uh is is obviously super impressive so i think i could definitely i would expect second round i think that he could easily go in that and he's still learning the game he's still got some upside as a prospect and uh and he's yeah he still has the tools just about being consistent coach bennett mentioned something about hearing from some nba folks about mamadi i don't remember that was on the meet the meet the team feed for fans on Sunday, or if that was in his media availability for media, but either way, you know, some second round kind of vibes, at least for him. I've got a little bit of Hasis Dubois, you know, post-traumatic, whatever going on, like, because he couldn't work out for teams and they didn't have mini camps and all that kind of stuff that really hurt Hasis's chance of getting picked up as an undrafted free agent. I'm just hoping that Mamadi doesn't end up in the same sort of boat where the lack of in-person workouts cost him an opportunity. Because I think if this was a normal process with a combine and a workouts where he's flying around the country and doing all that, he would have earned his way into a, a second round pick. Because I think when you get him in the gym with your own guys, you see the athleticism, it jumps off. Like he's such a great second jump guy athletically. And he really covers a lot of ground defensively. 
Um, it has good defensive instincts now, <laughs> like early on, didn't have that as much, but now he's got a feel for when to go help or over help, kind of like Isaiah Wilkins did toward the end. I, I'm just hoping it doesn't doesn't hurt him because of the scenario with with the pandemic. Hopefully he gets a chance to get drafted, but certainly hopes hopefully gets a chance somewhere, uh, either with a two-way contract like Kyle Guy had or, or Devin Hall had. He'll have something overseas regardless, but I'm, I'm hoping he gets a chance. Well, and I just had to smile when I heard a commentator, I can't remember who it was during the NBA finals was, or leading into the finals, maybe talking about the Miami heat this past year and just what a great defensive team they were and how, how well they were flying around and covering for each other. And just, it's like, yep. Yeah. We're used to seeing that around here. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the way they play every single game. So maybe some of those principles are uh, creeping into uh, to the NBA since the heat did so well this past year where we can, we can, only hope. So that's our uh, recap for uh, the basketball this week. And we wish the Who's the best of luck for uh, taking on Louisville on the football field this weekend. So on to our musical segment next, Turning the Tables, and we'll talk about the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony that just happened over the weekend. That's next here on the Saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about. You know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate and add something. All right, welcome back the Turning the Table segment of the Saber.com podcast. Just took a deep dive into basketball, which is easy for me to talk about any place, anytime, anywhere. Love the message board threads that have percolated up as basketball season gets closer. Well, Jeff Sweatman, who we turned the tables on here, is similar with music. He can he can just get into it, right, and get into the nitty gritty. Well, this past weekend was the Hall of Fame. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon, not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But, you know, if he was in a rock band, he would probably win a lot and sell a lot of tickets because that's what Malcolm Brogdon does. But um, they did induct some folks this past weekend. There were some snubs as well, <laughs> right? So we're going to kind of go through that. The one thing that kind of comes to my mind when I think about the Hall of Fame is Howard Stern inducted Bon Jovi into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and this year it was virtual. And all I can think about is how much Howard Stern complained about having to go to Cleveland <laughs> to, to induct Bon Jovi. If Bon Jovi was this year, he could have done it from home. He could have inducted them via Zoom. So <laughs> I'm sure yeah. Howard Stern was uh, thinking that himself. But yeah, what, what did you see from the, the virtual kind of release of the Hall of Fame induction stuff? You know, it, it's funny because it kind of came and went and I don't have HBO. So um it happened on Saturday and then I ended up reading some of the recaps and stuff. Uh, they've had to adjust their whole timeline, of course, with, with COVID and apparently it was a performance free edition of the show. So it was just all speeches and, you know, montages and pre-recorded stuff. So that was interesting. Oja Howard would have preferred that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming it didn't go on for, you know, five or six hours, like sometimes it has in the past, but the, the class of 2020 was Whitney Houston, Depeche Mode, Notorious B.I.G., Nine Inch Nails, the Doobie Brothers, and T-Rex. Now, hard to argue against any of those, really. I mean, there's always going to be the people who say, why are you know rap and pop artists getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? But it's kind of become, you know, a more inclusive way of just recognizing the most successful and most awesome, you know, artists of all time, really, uh, regardless of genre. 
And they've gotten in the past few years into this whole fan vote where at some point in the process, they open it up and say, here's our, the nominees that you can vote on. They don't leave it totally open-ended, but um, you know, and there's always grumbling about who's in, among the nominees and who got left out of that. But this year was notable because Pat Benatar got the most votes from the fans and Dave Matthews band were uh, actually Dave Matthews band were first, I think. And then Pat Benatar got a ton of votes too. Neither one uh, was a part of this 2020 class. So why do they even bother doing the fan vote? It, it only plays a, a small percentage of the overall tally when it comes to the industry and the, the other people that get to vote on the, this thing. So bands like um, Judas Priest and Motorhead, Thin Lizzy, Todd Rundgren, MC5, uh, Soundgarden, you know, those were all in the running this year and uh, they all came up short. But then you look at who did get in this year and you had, you know, Depeche Mode had to wait a few years. Nine Inch Nails had to wait a few years because they base it on 25 years since your first album or EP whenever uh, your first release comes out. So, you know, overall, I think they'll all get in uh, all of these controversial choices. And to some extent, they have to stretch it out because when you think about it, who are the artists from the last 25 years besides Dave Matthews Band that are going to get into this thing? So at a certain point, you know, um, some folks are saying like Kraftwerk, was passed over without Kraftwerk, there is no Depeche Mode or Nine Inch Nails. So maybe they should have gone in first and then, you know, things like that, do the pioneers first and then uh, go from there. But was um, this the uh, first year that Dave Matthews band was eligible? I believe was it was. Second year yes. they were I was thinking last year they were, but th this was their first year and uh, far and away number one in terms of the fan vote. So they, they got the word out <laughs> that way. But, you know, I, I would think and part of it too is they want to have a a show that they can put on with they don't want to you know have one year be motorhead judas priest and then lizzie all get in so they they spread it out that way too a little bit but uh you know nice to see doobie brothers get in and uh judd apatow i guess the the filmmaker uh, was the one he's apparently a huge doobie brothers fan so he got to do the honors there uh alicia keys inducted whitney houston iggy pop inducted nine inch nails so so anytime I Pretty hear cool. Nine Inch Nails, I always think of the Johnny Cash cover yeah, uh, of Hurt. So, you know, I, I don't listen to a lot of Nine Inch Nails, not really my genre typically that I would listen to, but right. I always think of that song and that cover. That, that's my familiarity with them, but I know that they have a lot of fans that would think they belong in the in the hall. Yeah, and they were big, you know, the, that first Lollapalooza tour, they were on that, that kind of uh, really vaulted them into the national uh, conversation. Apparently, Trent Reznor has said some not so nice things about the Hall of Fame uh, over the years, but then he inducted The Cure, which were kind of his big musical heroes last year. And apparently he had a big uh, to do uh, plan for this year where he was going to invite every single member of the band. He's had a ton of people that have worked with them in Nine Inch Nails over the years, and he was going to get them all on stage and perform had it been a, a normal year. But maybe that can still happen at some point down the line, because that would be something just to see how many guys he's had in that group all on stage at one time. Cause that's another aspect of the hall of fame. That's always kind of interesting and sometimes unfortunate where you have these guys who to the fans played an important role, like the drummer for, for Pearl jam who toured with them for like five years and was on like two or three of their biggest albums. He, he wasn't really invited by the rock hall to be a part of the induction. And then the band is put in the awkward position of like, well, okay, his name's got going to be on the plaque. And then they ended up, kind of inviting him, but they, <laughs> you could tell it was just super awkward 
because he was like, well, I'm not paying my own way to go there. Like, <laughs> so, so su super quick as we wrap up the, the final segment, have you been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I have. Have not been to the actual place in Cleveland. I did go to the induction when Pearl Jam got in and Letterman did the awesome speech to induct him a, a few years ago. I was in the, the press area. So it was odd because I was just kind of watching it on TV the whole time and didn't really, I wasn't allowed to even poke my head into the arena <laughs> to see what was going on. I was, but I was hearing it all on a feed in my uh, headphones. <laughs> and then some of the artists, not all of them, uh, and not Pearl Jam, unfortunately, but they, they brought some of the artists back. It wasn't really VIP treatment or anything, but it was pretty cool to have, you know, the guys from Journey, although Steve Perry didn't come back <laughs> to the media area. And then Pearl Jam never came back and stuff like that. But, it, you know, I got some good pictures. And then at a certain point, they would open it up for questions. And so the artist would take three or four questions and then move along. Uh, Snoop Dogg came back at one point. He was doing the induction speech for Tupac that year. And he said some great things, but I got to ask a question that the last artist they brought back. So I figured this is my chance. I better at least raise my hand at one point in this thing. And uh, so I talked to Nile Rogers about, um, you know, his take on what musicians, like when they're just getting started now, how do you go about getting known? You know, there's so much music out there and stuff. So he, his answer was basically get really good, you know, practice as much as you can, play as much as you can, and then kind of let the chips fall where they, they may. So Chris Horn, I, you ever been to the hall of fame? I've been to the baseball hall of fame. <laughs> yes. I have been to Cooperstown too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like I was, yeah. We we're driving out in Cooperstown and it's a little out there in New York, yeah. kind of like a scenic drive. I was, didn't know if I was going in the right direction, but then all of a sudden it kind of magically appears and then there's the beautiful baseball field. It was, that, that was very cool. The rock and roll would be cool to go to for sure. Je Jeff, why is it in Cleveland? You know, I think that's because of the DJ Alan Freed, who kind of coined the phrase rock and roll uh, when he was playing the music on the radio, one of the first to do it in the 50s. So I guess that's why. <laughs> so, so I will tell you that you do not have to drive out into the middle of nowhere to find it. It is right there in downtown Cleveland. <laughs> it is not hard to find. So whenever you're traveling again, after all this is over, you can try to do that. I, I will say walking through it is kind of cool. There was one, I guess, display that was there that kind of takes you through the, the history of way music is consumed, right? So like telegraph, phonograph type of with the horn all the way through like iPods when I was there. Now that's been several years because it's no longer iPods anymore. Now it's just your, your cell phone. So that's probably on the end of that exhibit yeah. now. So that was kind of cool. They had some costumes in there from, from artists when they were on tour. So different kind of costumes that you would recognize. There's like a wall with the different signatures on it. Not actual signatures, I guess, re recreated printed signatures. So you get a guy like Paul Simon, who's in there with Simon and Garfunkel and by himself. Guys like Paul McCartney, who's in there with the Beatles and with Wings, right? So you get some of the the overlapping guys on that big huge wall of signatures so it is kind of a neat thing just uh to experience if if you're in cleveland right so <laughs> maybe one of these years virginia will play somebody up that way and we'll have an excuse to uh to go back or i'll have an excuse to go back but yeah you guys will have an excuse to you get into the building jeff and, and chris uh to not have to drive out to the middle of nowhere to find it <laughs> i guess we'll circle back and wrap, wrap this up with dave matthews right so in a future show when we can't think of any other music topics we can just do 
Dave Matthews band if we've seen them live kind of memories or whatever. But it seems pretty likely that they'll end up in there eventually. They they certainly are one of the most popular touring bands of the last 25 years. So disappointing that they didn't get in there as, as Charlottesville band early on. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see with Dave Matthews. We will wait and see with Virginia basketball, how they look uh, with their newly minted number four ranking that in the press conference stuff, they were like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> you can fall on your face just as quickly as you can rise to number one. So they were disinterested in that number, but fans are excited about it. Yes. And we will see what uh, what the football team does with Louisville. Take two. Thanks for listening and 